How many times have you been in a situation or seen a situation or a video where somebody got badly hurt or attacked? Where And you think this could have all been avoided if the victim knew self-defense or had a weapon. Well, don't become a victim. Hit up Tucson's Rising Phoenix Fitness and Defense. They offer real-world self-defense training, and it is their mission to meet people at their comfort zones physically, psychologically, technically, and of course, financially during these troubling times as they offer sliding scale pricing. Now, if you ask me, martial arts is not just self-defense, but it's also very therapeutic. It's good for your health and good for your mental health as well. It can treat depression and anxiety. These guys are passionate about what they do. In fact, I seen his Facebook post saying even if they lose their business, he will teach people martial arts at the park. Please support local business. Now, not only do they offer self-defense training, but also gun handling classes. And this is accredited to your carry concealed permit. Hit up Tucson's Rising Phoenix Fitness and Defense, located at 4500 East Speedway Boulevard, number four. Tucson AZ 85712. You can call them at 520-838-1592. Screaming Chewy Show, your source of entertainment and overall fuckery and it starts now Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of Screaming Chewy Show. I'd like to welcome special guest, author, writer, Daniel Fisher. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good, man. Can't complain. Good. Hey, man. So uh, why don't you tell me about yourself and, uh, and what you do? Well, uh, I am an aging uh, writer. I used to be... For lack of a better word, I'm a writer now. Um, I used to be a painter, a sculptor. Um, I used to make large scale puppetry and I used to teach children how to make um, puppetry for pageants and performances. And I had written a long time ago, uh, the Philadelphia uh, School District's Guide to Art Education and in 2016, I could no longer use my hands, so I started writing as a form of physical therapy. And now I have four books 
uh, three of which are out. Uh, one anthology I've contributed to that's out. Two more anthologies that are either being published now or uh, coming shortly and two more books that are being published very soon. So quite a transition in a few short years. I'm kind of a workaholic. Man, you, so you have a lot of just uh, creative outlets, right? You just, um, you have a lot of creativity in you just wanting to come out. I've, I've found um, from my earliest childhood moments, if I don't do something creative, it, it's like a pressure building up inside of me and I need to get it out into the world. It's almost, it, it's almost like this pseudo spiritual, like I need to make what's in my head known to the world in some kind of artistic representation. Some therapy, huh? <laughs> Much needed. I would. Most people would agree. And like, uh, what what kind of <laughs> you like to paint? Like, what style, or is it your own style that you just made up? I I was classically trained. Um, I taught myself how to paint in oils, and I wanted to go with the old master style, like the early Renaissance. So I the form, the perspective. I was very rigid when I did it. And then I found the work of Salvador Dali when I was about 11 years old. And I started off into this surrealistic abstract mint. So a lot of it, a lot of the work and it, some of it I posted on my website uh, is ranges between pseudo surrealism and um, more of an abstract postmodern visualization kind of thing it's almost like you know what it is but you don't know what it is uh, um, it, i would like to think it's better than it is but it's, <laughs> i'm certainly no not bougie when it comes to the art world i find all that all that trite talk of like negative space and abstract performance and the deeper meanings of it it's like oh it's all hogwash you painted something you wanted to paint Oh, my bad. Uh, what were you talking about? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just talking about my paintings being me thinking my paintings are better than they probably really are. <laughs> you never know, um, because I like to paint and draw as well. And sometimes I think it sucks and people are like, oh, my God, it's so good. It, that's the thing with art. I think we're all every creative person is harder on themselves than other people are. So. I still find it hard to take compliments on it because I'm thinking what I could have done better. Very true. I think uh, you're like your own worst critic. Yeah. And that's why uh, quite a few editors of friends of mine are like, don't edit your own work. Have somebody else do it because you're, you're, you're going to be way harder and you're going to miss things and all of that. And it's like, yeah, you got a point. <laughs> You know, so I, could, it, I could totally see that you're writing a book and um, you go over it like 10 times before you release it. My first book, I, it took me two years to write because I went over it. I think I went over the first eight chapters about 100 times. And I couldn't let go of like the exact 
phrasing of a sentence and I would I would frustrate myself to the point where I had to walk away from it for a few months so I could move on and get the rest of the story written and once I did that it just kind of fell into place and the biggest lesson I learned was if you just keep digging at the same thing to just overdo it you're going to lose sight of the bigger picture and that's why I'm learning now that like when I get a draft or a manuscript ready to where I'm okay with it, send it off to an editor and then you can get a fresh perspective. Very smart. It was a hard fought lesson because my ego got in the way a lot. <laughs> and, and once the uh, first couple of books have been published, I'm like, ooh, there should have been a comma there. Ooh, I meant to change that word. And it's like, okay, admit it. You want somebody else to look it over. So the next couple of books I'm getting published, I'm going to try and have an, uh, an editor take a look over it and keep me a little more grounded, I think. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to put your pride aside and just do what you have to do because you're seeing your ego. It could get in the way a lot, you know. It can. And I, I think that's the biggest downfall with independent and emerging authors is um, we think we can do it all. And because we're learning this and we're eager to learn it and we're eager to do it and get our work out there for everyone to see that sometimes it it just the eagerness it sort of blinds you to, to some of the realities that of the readers. Like if somebody's reading my book and they don't understand the sentence structure, they're going to be less inclined to finish it. Right. True. And um, so what was your first book and what inspired you to write? Or I mean, what inspired you to write that story? The first one I, I had written was not the first one I published. The first one I I had written was my place of things series. It's, an epic fantasy tale of a, an individual who's broken, just completely ready to end it all, ready for the universe to just crush him. His life sucked. He, you know, he was only staying alive out of spite. Um, he gets sucked into a world that shows that not only he has a place in it, but it's a fantasy book, so I, I draw on the traditions and mythology of the past, and every character in there is somehow special, but by interacting with them, he finds he is worth something and his life matters, and they find that they're opening up to new concepts that they hadn't understood before. So it's not like a one way or another, like he's being saved, it's sort of like an entire group working together to create a place where everyone can thrive. And it shows a lot of the challenges, a lot of the prejudices, a lot of the emotional connections and disconnections people from different groups have. And it's done. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and it's it's done in a way that, like, um, <clears throat> he gets taken, the, the whole premise starts off with 
the protagonist, I guess you could call him, um, is his roommate happens to be a vampire. So I start that out of the gate and then, but he's a cynic, so he doesn't care. And then he gets dragged into a world where for most of the first book, he's the only human being, biological human being there. Oh shit, so he's one of his kind. Yeah, and and it's it's a process of him learning the realm of the mysteries, otherness, um, creatures that were thought to be fantasy or children's nightmares. He's living in a town full of these people, and they're adjusting to him as he's adjusting to them. And then the story progresses with each book. That was the first book I'd written, and that took forever to write because it ended up being a million words and a thousand pages long, and now it is four separate books. Wow. Wow. <laughs> because To make it a little more digestible. You know, I love that idea. You know, it um, seems like it's a metaphor for what's going on now, you know, Everybody's different. There's different cultures, races and stuff. And we all just need to get along. But, you know, we treat each other like we're different creatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so I like that, you know, there's different monsters and vampires, but they're all just trying to get along and live together, you know. And I tried to add to it that they're not all trying to get along. There's a lot of deep seated like issues each of them are having, but one thing I really wanted to focus on was a non-apologetic approach. There's no coming out stories. There's no explanation beyond this person is a troll. This person is a Kelpie. This person is a psychokinetic cat. Like there's, you have to accept it as the reality from get go because this otherwise the storyline gets muddled down it's like if you walk into a room and there's um a 22 foot long snake as your server you just run with it and then like from that you can go delve way more into the depths of their personal life how they operate what they do who their friends are who they like who they don't like and it, you can get more of a gist of a story instead of, well, he was totally shocked because there's a werewolf right there and she was mean to him. And it's like, okay, yeah, get over it. Move on. So wow. it's, it, I, I really didn't want to do any kind of like, oh, apologetic storyline where his life sucked because he's gay or her life sucked because she was a werewolf or you know her mom's a witch her dad's a vampire like I didn't want to get into any of all that just like so those things were just sort of like tucked in into the storyline nice um because like <clears throat> and like especially with like race and gender like those things I I I find we we as a society don't take either of those seriously at all. There's no serious discussions. And so how you treat people 
on a subconscious level is based on our own stereotypes. So I made an active role to not, not ignore it, but to play it in such a way as I'm not treating this character any differently than this character. So I don't say, I don't spend a lot of time talking about their ethnic background. There's a, like, in, I think the only phrase I ever used was, she was a Chinese woman to give you the sense. And that was describing her overall look, appearance and style. And then talking about the characters, there's um, a witch that, there's a conversation in, in the, the first book of, she, she asked the protagonist like, why I'm the only black woman in town? And his response was, I guess purple was already taken. And then <laughs> they move on because her character is not defined by the hue of pigment of her skin. And same with the gendering. It's like, it doesn't matter. Gender, well, it matters, but it shouldn't matter in the sense that someone's capabilities. I love that. So it, I I tried to walk that nuanced line of like describing hue, texture, coloration, um, different types and celebrating it for what it is. Not the, and, and then that helped me expand the entire book on celebrating the differences as being good and thriving. And because homogenized society just doesn't work. Wow, man. Daniel breaking barriers over here, man. <laughs> Trying to. I'm not going to tell you the secret of the Minotaur that's in the book, but it's pretty fun. Oh, nice. The Minotaur. <laughs> that's a very interesting mythological creature right there. Well, Here's the thing, though. It's the Easter egg is she's not actually a minotaur. Oh, plot twist, huh? Yeah, she's just playing one. And so, um, you studied a lot of uh, like paganism and stuff like that, right? Paganism, archaeology, anthropology, ethnography, uh, ancient traditions, folklore, mythology. I've geeked out on it my entire life. So a lot of that, it, um, it went into your books as well, right? Yeah, I'm I'm a very unapologetic pagan writer. Um, I I do not discuss Christ. I do not discuss Jesus. I do not discuss monotheism. Um, none of my books have any of that in it. Nice. <laughs> And the reason for that is not because I dislike all Christians. It's simply because our, our dominant culture has been so inundated with the effects of monotheistic belief and how our day-to-day -day lives, without even knowing it on a subconscious level, we, we use the expression when we're upset, Jesus Christ, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. without thinking about it. So I'm trying to sort of disconnect that and real make a world that shows 
a polytheistic tradition or traditions is possible to have a myriad of belief systems in it and a myriad of traditions that can coexist with each other in a way that represents and honors you know nature and the universe and all of that to sort of break some of the social conditioning that frankly, the Roman Catholic Church imposed on Western civilization for over 2,000 years Mm -hmm. with genocidal results. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think people, uh, a lot of people misunderstand pagans uh, right away. They think they're witchcraft, devil worshipers. And, you know, I think that's so wrong. If people are just, I want to say ignorant, but also miseducated, um, they just don't do their own research, basically. Now, and to this day, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has never apologized for the Inquisitions or what's known as the Burning Times, where over 9 million people, mostly women, were tortured and executed and murdered in Europe alone. Now, what they did in the Americas, they still haven't apologized for either, but that was at least a good 20 million people dead. And yet the cultural assumption is that witches are evil because they're all Satanists. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Witches don't celebrate Satan. That there's That's just stupid Christian propaganda. <laughs> Witchcraft is, uh, has its roots in traditions that date back 30,000 years or more. Um, paganism, different belief systems, and, and Here's one thing that people really should think about. What we in the United States call paganism, if you go to India and you talk to large groups of Hindus, what they consider paganism is very different than what we consider it because their belief system has their own cultural iconography, their own setup, their own system of beliefs. And I'm talking specifically Hindi. Um, There's multiple deities, but... In, in that culture, they also refer to other people as pagans because the concept of paganism is, its original word means rural dweller, but its social, how it was associated means a group of individuals that don't believe necessarily in the dominant social thinking religiously. Oh, wow. I had no idea. So, so like where you go in the world, if you're, if the dominant culture calls you a pagan, it usually implies, it's like an insult. It implies that you're somehow a, he- a heathen or a hedonist, or it, it gets associated with negative thoughts. And the modern pagan movement is reclaiming that kind of notion that, yeah, I'm a pagan. I, I, I'm wild, I'm free, I believe in nature, I believe in the earth, and it's not a bad thing. So it's just social context of words. You know, there's a lot of people that call themselves spiritual that are very monotheistic or very polytheistic, and it all comes down to words and how words are used to control action, behavior, thought processes, societal direction, all of that. 
Wow. Um, I, I just love that kind of stuff. I don't know why, you know, other cultures and stuff and religions just, you know, I, I find it so interesting. I, I wish I had been able to travel the world throughout my youth just to learn a lot more. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of an armchair explorer. I, I so want to be like right there in the trenches and just absorb a culture's knowledge and not to appropriate it, but to honor it and understand it. And I think if more people did that, we live in a much kinder world. Very true. Cause I think a lot of the ignorance <laughs> comes from people not doing research, but also not getting out there. Um, a lot of people just never travel. They just stay in the same place and they just hate on other cultures and religions, but they don't even understand it. Yeah, I, I've i grown up in central Indiana, and so I learned that the hard way. <laughs> and now that I'm unfortunately back in central Indiana, waiting till my parents die, uh, it sounds more macabre than it really is. I'm I'm one of their caregivers, and they're, they're <laughs> and I have to deal with the estate when they're gone. So it's like I moved back here to help. But long story short, is the time I was away from India and time that I've been back it hasn't changed a lot. It's closed-minded, like everyone's so insular, and it's not it's not that people are ignorant or they're willfully trying to be hateful or disrespectful it's that people get so consumed with their own life that it's hard to look past the horizon and like i grew up in a rural area in indiana and it started out as a small town it's a much larger town now and that experience of your worldview is based on that like that small little bubble and it's really people are really resistant to open up because there's a lot of fear of what if something bad happens and it takes time and unfortunately it takes time for people to sort of expand upon their horizons of things and um create a bridge of understanding. One example is when I was growing up, the town I grew up in had sundown laws. I'm not sure if anyone knows what sundown laws are anymore, but legally they weren't supposed to after the 1969 Civil Rights Act, but up until the mid seventies, early eighties, the town I grew up in, if you were a person of color, you were not to be in town after sundown. Holy shit. Yeah. They were that xenophobic, that racist, that narrow-minded that it, for some reason, just growing up, I knew I was the odd one out because I'd look around at this town and I'd see all these things wrong. And so I'd start looking, trying to find little pieces, little scraps that showed this little bubble wasn't the world. Because if it was, I didn't want to be in it. <laughs> Over time, that's changed. And now the town that I grew up in 
was one of the first in Indiana to do uh, protections for all people, people with disabilities, LGBTQ, people of different faiths, skin color, uh, national origin, background, immigration, like they have protections in place where the greater state of Indiana, most of the state does not. So there's been that change and it was hard fought and hard won by all the people that questioned what was going on in that reality. Now, if everybody in the world started questioning their reality, we might see some real change. Very true. And that's one thing I love about your book is um, you're busting those little bubbles. You know what I mean? Breaking those barriers. The bar is open. Sit back, grab a cold one, and get ready for the news you didn't even know you needed. From the frozen wasteland of western North Dakota to the tropical playground of Florida, it's time for tales of wonder and amazement. Put the kids to bed and pour yourself a drink. Lock the doors and close the blinds. Break out the cocaine and hookers. It's time for Happy Hour News. with their outlandish conversations broadcasted to you. Join the hosts Nick and Josh every Wednesday morning to break free of your regular mindless life as they tackle topics ranging from just about anything possible. And if you need more spice in your life, tune in every Friday at midnight for the Mindless Midnight where they host special guests. Time to get mindless. Hey, so I'm sure you've noticed I've been getting a lot more celebrity guests on my show. And this is all thanks to Steve Joyner. He's a publicist. And man, this guy takes his work seriously. He does not fuck around. And this guy is keeping me busy, yo. Yeah, I'm just getting so many celebrity guests. Thank you so much, Steve Joyner. And um, if you yourself are an actor, director, producer, and you are looking for a uh, publicist, do not hesitate to contact Steve, right? He is a really cool guy. You'll love him, okay? His phone number is 816-605-4561. Or if you would like to email him, it's uh, all one word, starts with a capital S. And it's stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. So again, starts with a capital S. And then it's T-E-V-E-S-J-N-E-T-W-O-R-K at gmail.com. Tell him Screamy Chewy sent you. You will not be disappointed. And uh, yeah, so big shout out to you, Steve. Thanks again, bro. Peace. I like to do that. And some, like... People get have gotten quite offended at some of my word choices um, because I don't like to pull punches. I and I use dark humor as a way to express things. Oh, I love so, it. <laughs> so, like, if just when I'm getting to a point that it feels like somebody's gonna get like so skeeved out or they're gonna be so depressed 
after reading a tragic scene in one of my books, and I go to some really dark places. Um, a lot of it's based on personal experience, but I go to some very dark places. And then I do 180 with some flippant comment or scene description and just add that twisted humor to it to say, to at least kick somebody in the head and say, it's not the end of the world. Just keep reading. Yeah, I, 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 I myself <laughs> um, use a lot of dark humor. And I love it. I, it's not for everybody, but um, I don't know how to explain it. But I think it's more realistic sometimes. Um, I don't know how to explain it. You know, um, I look at it as if you can't laugh at something, you're already dead. <laughs> I like <You> know? that. <laughs> and, and like every time I I had health problems, every time I was sent to the hospital, every time. Um, my parents thought I was going to be dead. <laughs> like, I I turn around and say, well, I'm, my doctors would ask me, why are you laughing? It's like, because if you're not laughing, you're already dead. That's just it. Mm-hmm. Shit happens in life. Sorry about the swearing. It happens in life. Always. You have a few options. You can either succumb to it. You can power through it. You can rise above it. Or you can laugh about it. And if you laugh about it, it means you've already done the other three things. You've Very already true. powered through it. You've already risen above it. And you can own it. And you can celebrate that you've learned something from that experience. And it gives you, it, it's this sort of power dynamic. It's a personal power dynamic. There's there's something in uh uh, an old folkloric, um, I'm, it's kind of like a book of shadows thing, like an old, an old story in one of the traditions of, of witchcraft that I, I learned when I was about nine, um, a piece of advice that has always stuck with me. It says, evil cannot have power over you unless you give it to it. Nice. And that is something I've tried to live with in understanding. It's like, what power do I want to give over to things? Do I want to be caught up in a cycle of hate or self-destruction, depression? Um, Yeah, I got help. Like, when I'm in a situation where I feel like I got dealt a shitty hand, I can either let that shitty hand win or I can cheat and say, well, I'm pulling an ace out of my sleeve and then move on and move forward. Yeah, it's like you tell life, oh, fuck me, fuck you. (laughs) Exactly. And like when I do stupid stuff, uh, people look at me like I'm on crack sometimes because if I do something stupid and there's a consequence, I'm like, yeah, the universe just hit me upside the head with a skillet. And people look at me like, what? It's like that kind of humor isn't for everyone, but I find it interesting. It, it's like the the blood and guts and gore and stuff are are just in the meat of a story you know so you get you mm-hmm. dig your hands in there and you rip the flesh open and you play around in the insides of the 
cavity and then you find what you're looking for. Nice. Because <laughs> life's not clean, so why should <laughs> descriptions of a storyline be clean? <laughs> yeah, you're just keeping it real, you know? Yeah. And if you don't have it set in a, in a basis of reality or at least some kernel of reality, people aren't going to be able to relate to anything you have to say. And I think that dark humor also weeds out the weak. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> um, I, one of the best compliments I got from my book, Date with Death, is my middle sister. Um, she said, I had to pull out the thesaurus on the first page. And I'm like, sorry? <laughs> And she's like, why do you write like that? It's like, well, I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm not going to change my story because you don't understand it. Learn something. <laughs> nice. And that's that also goes with the humor. It's like, if you're writing a story, you, you kind of want your audience to learn something from it. And you don't want to just go to the lowest common denominator either. You know, so it's you got to walk that line. I like it, you know. Um, so, uh, you're you're writing your fourth book right now. Uh, I'm trying to remember actually because I'm running two at the same time. Oh, uh, I'm finishing the fourth book in the Place of Things series now, and I'm writing um, the second book in the Date with Death. It's a sequel to Date with Death. So why don't you tell me a little bit about oh, Date with Death? That sounds very interesting. It is. That one is my first published book. Um, I was taking a break from the big story, the, the big epic series, and I just needed to blow off steam. So I started writing this thing. Turned into a short story. I sent it off to a publisher. They were kind enough to send back editing notes. And they were like, it, it overall, it's a good story, but the perspective needs to be fixed. And I was like, I was thinking about it. And then I retooled it and I rewrote it and I was really proud of it. So I sent it off to the publisher and they printed it. And I was like, damn, okay. And Day With Death is, um, it's a dark paranormal fiction comedic romance nice. it's ba it's basically a romance series uh, a romance book but it takes place with the lead character is um his name is dustin nay and he is traveling cross country with a group of friends to visit his parents who are having um his mother's hosting uh, interfaith spirituality convention, but it's actually a, a tax dodge so she can drum up money for her spiritual supplies shop. Um, and he's very stoic, demure, comes off as very closed off, not a lot of fun. His, he's the people he hangs out with take advantage of him, pretty much treat him like he's just that 
extra wheel that they can count on to open doors and go get them drinks and things like that. Um, his best friend, Armin, is there with him. And he knows Dustin's family is a little strange. Grew up with them. And they come, they're coming from Scranton, Pennsylvania and traveling across country. And they make it to St. Louis. And that's where the storyline really changes. Dustin uh, meets up with one of his old... Meets up, well, not old flame, but somebody he's always been interested in getting to know better. <laughs> and it turns out it's the physical manifestation of death. So they kind of hit it off and the storyline progresses from there. Wow, so, man, I dig it. Yeah, so it's, and, and most of it is Dustin and death, or I actually played around in the book about naming him because like his, there are so many aspects of death, like what happens to your body after you die, where, who's the farrier, the soul, uh, like the left, left side of Anubis. There's so many different belief systems around death and the, the specific attribute that they contribute during the death cycle that I think the, the moment of the body's death to taking the soul to the taking the soul to the for lack of a better word person who will take then take the soul on to the next place dropping it off to someone else who will take the soul on to the next place and it goes from there oh. there's so many different aspects of death that i started toying around with it and I, there's one scene where Dustin's friend Armin walks into a hotel room and sees them together. And then they start talking. And after a lot of the weirdness and wedding themselves, himself uh, happened. And <laughs> he, they start toying around with names. And I just try and start playing with names. And they decide on Alma Wat. It is ancient Egyptian, but it's also Arabic. It just literally means death. And that's oh, what they wow. settle on. But because Dustin's friends are not schooled in the same background as him, they start calling the guy Al. So he gets stuck <laughs> being called Al through the rest of the books. You know, I, I think that's very interesting because like you were saying, different religions have a different view on death. Well, you kind of mixed them up a little bit, right? Like this. Oh, yeah. This guy I mean, hands them off to this one. Like, you know, when like there's a chariot with horses that takes your soul. Maybe yep. you drop them off to the one that, you know, takes you on a little boat on the Sea of Souls or something like that. Yeah, there's there's Egyptian, there's Greek, there's Roman, there's Norse, there's Polynesian, there's Chinese, there's Mandarin, there's Cantonese, there's, I mean, there's Mayan, there's Aztec, there, there's as many religions as there are in the world, there's different aspects for the nature of death and what it does. Um, like, there's one one specific deity I, I, I toured around with, it's uh, Vito, Vito, Vito 
I can't pronounce it. It's it's a Roman god of that extracts the soul from the body and carries it on to the afterlife. Um, there's the left hand of Anubis, which is a shadow figure at Anubis's left side that is the, the one who actually hearkens the souls. There's Sharon who ferries the souls across the river Styx. Oh, it's Vidius. Sorry, Vidius was the Roman guy. I I had a brain fart. <laughs> um, so there are different things, and I to toy around with them, and I drop a few uh, like pre-dynastic, early dynastic, and Middle Kingdom um, Egyptian stuff because I I kind of stuck with the Egyptian thing because I think it's something that is not as explored as well as it could be. There's a lot of stuff that has like Egyptian mythology in it, but it's like, it's so uh, uh, gentrified, I guess is the lack for lack of a better <laughs> word, that it's everybody thinks, you know, Osiris, Ra, Anubis, Set, Isis, and that's it. But there's like queerty, and then there's like, all these other people in there and like and there it goes each the ancient egyptian culture is really fascinating because each kingdom from the uh archaic demotic pre-dynastic early dynasty middle kingdom new kingdom and then ptolemaic um where the romans came in and conquered they're like there's so much playing back and forth. And then you have the interplay between Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt and Nubia, and like how they all just interact. And for such an old culture, a lot of people think of it as being a static culture, but it changed so much in 3000 years that it just like, it had little nuances on who's on, it, it's sort of like, America's next top model each season it was like <laughs> different deities were competing to be in like popular oh wow that's a good way to put it I like it and that, and that's why I like I, I like doing that with my work is because there's such a richness of cultural traditions from all over the world you pick a date and then like say the year 927 AD you go culture you span the world's cultures and you can find really amazing interesting stories and then you move ahead 500 years check out all those cultures again the stories have changed so much because mythology tradition folklore all of that is not static culture is not static it's ever changing ever nuanced ever flowing and it's such a well for writing that i i don't think i'm ever gonna run out of people that tell stories about <laughs> fuck yeah that's the plus right there right uh yeah ending content right there yeah it's like and this is non uh, non-intentional slag to uh roman catholics but that that is a static 
belief system. So you can only write about certain setups and structures and tenets of the Roman Catholic tradition because what happened 400 years ago, they still have to abide by those same rules. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like, to me, that becomes a little more insular. Whereas, you know, Celtic culture, you have pre-Celtic, you have different Celts from different regions, you have different time periods, you have different belief systems, you have different influences. Was it pre-Roman? Was it post-Roman? Is it like a culture of the north of France or part of Austria or part of Germany or Scotland or Ireland or Wales or and all those cultures have different aspects. And then based on the period of time you're talking about, they have different understandings of how that culture was working. And so the rules of writing are way more open because, you know, at one point they had blood sacrifices. At another point, they beheaded people. At another point, they didn't do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really, it's really interesting how you can go through and, and go to any culture in the world. And if you understand the culture and you understand the traditions and you come at it without trying to culturally appropriate it, you get a much richer and much better story. And You're a smart guy. Well, I'm a smart ass at least. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I hard to take compliments <laughs> as a writer because you're always thinking what well, you could do better. Yeah, man, I just love how, you know, you're just taking those, um, you know, you're breaking those barriers of gender, religion, and, uh, you know, just mixing them all up and not keeping them separate like everybody wants to, you know, just all against each other and shit. I, I, as long, I try and do it in an honorable tradition. Like, I want to mix them together, but not, like, appropriate it. So it's, it's sort of like a showcasing of each character has their own belief systems, their own belief traditions. They come from their own specific culture. And I try and honor that without you know, homogenizing it. And that's the hardest part about doing it because like, I mean, even well-meaning, well-intended people in our society have a bad tendency to, uh, I'm not, this is not a political thing, but it's the terminology, liberalize stuff and take liberties with stuff that they don't fully understand. And I certainly don't fully understand some of these cultures because I, I'm not from that culture, but I can try to do it respectfully, honorably, and without appropriating it. Wow. It's it's like whenever I see somebody with a dream catcher in their windshield, like hanging off their rear view mirror. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, do you really know anything about that? Or did you get that at a hippie shop? Just to look cool. It's where they bought some incense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or their CBD oil or whatnot. It's like, like that kind of stuff. Like, it's the well-meaning, well-intentioned, do-gooder thing. But if you're not careful, you can do a lot more cultural harm than good. And I don't think people fully embrace that kind of concept right now because they want to know that they're doing good things. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. 
And sometimes do-gooders are way worse than the villains. And they don't know it. <clears throat> At least with villains, you know where they stand. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. Or if they do care, they're overzealous. <laughs> so, but it's the gooders, as my dad calls them, uh, that kind of kind of muck things up a little bit. Yeah, and um, you know, and that that goes into you know a lot more things like activist groups and stuff like that. I think many of the, you know, it started with a good idea and looks good on paper, but a lot of them don't know what they're doing or what they're fighting for, and it just makes it worse. It does. Like, I get really irritated when a whole bunch of, and I, I know this isn't PC, I and I, I don't care if I'm offending some group, but when a whole bunch of first world, cisgendered, middle class white kids from the suburbs going to the neighborhoods and I live in a shithole neighborhood and I, I see it here and I see it downtown Indianapolis and I see it all over the country when they go in and they start speaking for the people who actually have to live day to day with the bullshit that's going on in America that takes me off mm -hmm. yep. and like that whole Black Lives Matter movement, the, all the media focused on were was the negative aspect. And the negative aspect were all those pompous, pretentious white kids coming into the neighborhoods. They didn't live there. They just wanted to fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah, big time. And it's like, you want to do that? Do it in your own damn neighborhood and see how people react. I'm, this is me getting on my soapbox. I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I think you're 100% right. I agree with you. The the do-gooders in this world, you know, they're just taking it too far and they're not very educated on what they're trying to do. But, um, you know, I just love that you're straight up, man, um, and you put that diversity in your books and um, you don't care what people think. I like it, man. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm trying. I got to say um, one thing that one piece of advice I'll give to any well-intentioned white person, take a breath and don't think, you know, everything. And for God's sake, shut the fuck up. I like it. <laughs> Let other people talk. Fuck yeah, man. Great advice. And um, so where can people find your books and find your stuff? <clears throat> I have an Amazon page. It's Daniel Fisher at Amazon.com. You can find me. I have uh, my current book, published books listed. Um, I am published through Breaking Rules Publishing. They're in Pompano Beach right now, but they're moving to St. Petersburg. We are going to descend upon, writers of all kinds are going to descend upon St. Petersburg, Florida in the next year to make it a sort of a new renaissance of creativity and a hub of authors and writers to change the world. And, but that's Breaking Rules Publishing is the publisher and the, I have my website, puppycatpress.com. 
And my Amazon page, Daniel Fisher, Amazon, and you can also find me on Goodreads under Daniel Fisher. Awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for coming on, man. And a uh, big shout out to Breaking Rules Publishing. It was such a pleasure. Awesome, man. Um, And uh, you have a good day, bro. Thank you so much. You as well. Later. Later. What is the most dangerous book you have ever read? How about Mein Kampf by the notorious leader of the Nazis, Adolf Hitler? Or the book the Beatles warn us about in their classic song, Revolution? Quotations from Chinese Communist leader, Chairman Mao. Maybe you would hide your copy of Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. Or even semi-fictional works like Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses. That book had him living in hiding from angry Muhammad followers. But what about a book that is most likely not only dangerous to own and read, but could very well be illegal in many countries? Roderick Edwards' book, How to Overthrow Our Government, takes the reader on a historical and hypothetical journey of revolutions, civil war, and sedition. From ancient Chinese farmers turning their farm tools into weapons, to the attempted impeachment of the U.S. President Trump, this book has it all. Get it today before it's banned forever. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to support this podcast, check out anchor.fm slash screamingchewygmail.com. Any contribution is greatly appreciated and that makes you my producer. If not, that's cool. I'm just happy you're tuning in. And hey, Screaming Chewy Show merch. Yeah, that's right. At teespring.com. Just Google teespring, T-E-E spring, Screaming Chewy Show. Just Google that. It'll take you right there. And uh, yeah, you could buy hoodies, t-shirts, socks, masks, you know, if there's any stuff you'd like to see on there or purchase, just let me know and I'll add it on. And uh, yeah, you'll be rocking, styling, social media. Don't forget to follow me on there on Facebook, Screaming Chewy Show. I like to share memes, just make up stupid shit, share my episodes on there and just whatever. Um, Check out my YouTube for video versions of my podcast episodes also in between episodes i like to add me streaming yeah watch me get scared playing a creepy game or die playing PUBG or some shit you know what i mean and uh yeah just check out my youtube and uh twitter it's at screaming chewy yeah not screaming chewy show i should change it to that but for now it's just screaming chewy and uh thanks again for tuning in see you next week peace